So today we're, we're continuing our four-week sermon series this fall called Called, exploring our creative calling in the world, um, but how that lands in our everyday lives, how that lands in our work that we do, in our relationships, and today we're going to look at it in our place, and that's it's really cool um, that that coincides with our two-year anniversary in this place. So Oak Church, uh, you can ask uh, some of the folks that were here towards the beginning, Oak Church has always been kind of led by a place. You know, a lot of church plants, they, they gather for a long time and then they, they just kind of do all this location scouting, mostly to find a place they can afford and, and a place uh, where they can inhabit. But for us, it, the, the church that met here for so many years, Lakewood Baptist Church, closed its doors three Easter's ago and there was this, this gap, this void and plenty of ministry to be done in this neighborhood that, that is so rapidly uh, renewing in, in parts of it and other parts so so um, vocally uh, groaning for renewal. And, and, and so we were formed to be in this place. So today I, I, I want to look um, at a passage of scripture uh, in Jeremiah 29. Uh, and I'll invite Sarah to come up and, and read from that passage for us as we consider our calling in this place. This is Jeremiah 29, um, 4 through 14. The Lord of the heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims to all exiles, I have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Cultivate gardens and eat what they produce. Get married and have children. Then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they may too have more children. Increase in numbers there so that you don't dwindle away. Promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because your future depends on its welfare. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims, Don't let the prophets and diviners in your midst mislead you. Don't pay attention to your dreams. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. The Lord proclaims, when Babylon's 70 years are up, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have in mind for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for peace, not disaster. To give you a future filled with hope. When you call me and come, and pray to me, I will listen to you. When you search for me, yes, search for me with all your heart, you will find me. I will be present for you, declares the Lord, and I will end your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have scattered you, and I will bring you home after your long exile, declares the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. So many of you are probably familiar with 
this passage in Jeremiah, especially if you've graduated from high school or um, maybe gotten married or uh, many other occasions. So to prepare for this, I, I, I look I looked for some inspiration from some of these cross stitches uh, or, you know, graduation. Uh, I, I don't know, a baby's nursery, you know? There's, there's also, you know, if you're feeling under the weather or being rained on, there's kind of an Etsy sensibility about this, Pinterest worthy. And this one, I don't know if you can read it, but it says, when life gets rough, are you FF? I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. But I don't really think that this is what this passage is about, especially as we consider it for our calling. Actually, I want to explore today kind of three images of, of how we are to uh, live our calling in a place. Um, three images that I, that I think this passage helps us with. Uh, the first and I think this immediately dispels these kind of cross-stitch Jeremiah 29 notions. But the first image, kind of the posture that we take and the actions that we do, is that, is that we might be blues singers in a place. To get a little better idea of what the prophet Jeremiah was getting on about in this passage, I think it's nice to go back to Israel's songbook. Uh, the psalms that we have at our disposal. We have all these extant psalms of this people and, and these songs that these people use to form their identity. And, and so uh, Psalm 137 starts with one of these sad blues songs. And this is from this time in the Babylonian exile. And so the psalm starts, and, and again, this, there's plenty of cross-stitch style psalms that give us great comfort, but this psalm isn't one of them. It starts, along Babylon's streams, we sat down crying because we remembered Zion. We hung up our lyres, our instruments, in the trees there, because that's where our captors asked us to sing our tormentors' requested songs of joy. They said, sing us a song about Zion. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? This is a sad, sad song. This is not cross-stitch theology. This is theology for God's people who have been forcibly placed into exile, moved from home to not home. They moved to a place that wasn't their home, and, and for all intents and purposes, didn't seem like it could ever be their home because people there did not worship their God. Their whole mission, their whole identity as God's people, blessed to be a blessing to this world, was threatened. This song gives us a hint at their new situation. They hang up their instruments because they think their time and place and ability to sing is gone. If you ever read the Psalms, this is pretty dire considering how important singing a new song unto the Lord is. All these psalms say, sing a new song unto the Lord, because a new song is not just like our novelty for, for top 40 radio, and we get sick of a song, so we want a new song. Their new song says that God is doing a new thing and renewing the face of this earth that he created. All of creation is singing a new song. Creation, uh, Romans tells us, is groaning for renewal, but they hang up their hearts. They have no new song. They don't even have an old song. They have no 
song. They're the, singing a new song to them is, is God's spirit breathing into their lungs, giving them breath, and it filtering out through their whole body so that they can sing of this renewal when God will renew his people. But here they are in a place that isn't their own, trying to muster music, or maybe even not trying to muster music. It strikes me that they're calling in this posture, and ours is to find a place in the middle here, between Zion and Babylon, to re- regain our ability to, to sing in, in, in this time that doesn't feel like our time, in this place that doesn't always feel like our place, to, our calling is to learn the blues. I remember um, the chance I had in high school to go to a, con- a concert with, your, with my parents, and that's super cool to do in high school, to go to a concert with your parents, but it was an amazing enough concert that I could not turn it down. So I went and saw B.B. King sing the blues at the first performance at Bethune-Cookman College's new performing arts center in Daytona Beach, Florida. His singing and his playing deeply communicated this, this man's life. He was, he was born in Mississippi on a plantation that picked cotton. His songs and his playing, maybe even his playing more than his songs, communicated this suffering of the Mississippi Delta and his people. Here's a, a little bit of how this works here for us. We have this, this singing, this song, and sometimes this singing happens for us in a way that is triumphant. Sometimes it happens in a way like some of those songs we sang this morning where we have joy. And sometimes we're in this place, this place of suffering, that, that I think Psalm 137 describes this place where we hang up our instruments because it feels like we have no song and where the blues singer lives is right here <laughs> right in that almond shape right in the middle of suffering and song B.B. King uh, once said that, that this is kind of how the blues began or began out of a feeling of being misused and mistreated feeling like they had nobody to turn to. Blues don't necessarily have to be sung by a person that came from Mississippi as I did because there are people having problems all over the world, people having problems in places. In the life of Oak Church, I think one of the places where I began to learn the blues, and and as church planners, they don't teach you that you're supposed to learn the blues, right? Uh, it, It was about a year in and about a year ago, uh, I, I was going to Food Lion, walking to Food Lion to buy communion bread, which I kind of do, and they know me by name. And um, I think before they knew I was a pastor, they wondered why I was always purchasing King's Hawaiian bread and Welch's grape juice. It's a strange <laughs> diet. Um, but as I was walking just, just around the corner, I noticed all these police cars over by Gary's house, uh, right by uh, Pine State Flowers, fencing off Lakewood Avenue. Earlier that morning, there had been a shooting. There had been a shooting in the neighborhood, and we came to find out it was a young man named Chewy Badia. Chewy was a, we didn't know him. Um, he was a new father, and, and we got to meet his, his baby daughter um, a couple weeks later uh, when we uh, participated in a vigil. And we did this uh, with several other folks in the neighborhood, um, an organization called Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. Joey helped lead 
this effort. That was one of your first tasks as intern, so watch out, Sarah. Uh, but what struck me most about that time together, that awful time, that horrible way to meet your neighbors, was when Nell started to sing for us. N Justin and Nell lead here sometimes, and, and she just started an impromptu chorus, and everyone seemed to know the words, and that seemed to be the only appropriate thing for us to do in the midst of suffering and in the midst of the song that, that most of us carry out through our days. And it was a hymn, but it was a blues song. That when I say the blues, I, I might as well mean a, a spiritual or, or even like the conflictedness of like a Kendrick Lamar song or, or maybe like I, I suggest songs for our musicians sometimes and sometimes they listen to me. And I suggested a Bob Marley song by the Rivers of Babylon, which re recounts this, this deep groaning, this suffering in this song. I think for the future of ministry here in this place, I think it'll be important for us to continue to know these scales, these blues, to continue to get them in our bones. This week, just watching the news, and, and every day you turn on the news, and it seemed like every day, every time you, you went to Twitter, there was a new hashtag, whether it was Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa or Keith Scott in Charlotte, and, and, and the order of those, the chronological order, seemed like it's just getting closer and encroaching upon us, and, and it made me wonder if we're in this neighborhood that, and that happens here, what, what is going to happen? How, how are we going to be present here for that? Not, not if, but unfortunately kind of when that happens. How are we going to how are we going to have language for that that avoids either kind of denial or flippancy on the one hand or, or riots on the other? I, I think riots become the language of suffering without song. I think it's we need to learn how to sing the blues, how to join in whole communities who know how to sing the blues and have known how to sing the blues for a long time in the midst of suffering. The next image that I gathered from this, this text, this wonderful text, was an image of, of being a resident alien, being a, being a refugee. I've seen and learned a lot from folks at Oak Church in this last ye year or two about what it might mean to actually be homeless. We have all these songs, all these Christian hymnody, all, all this rhetoric around how we're we're in the world, but not of the world, and how this world is not my home. But I, I, I've come through just being here with you all to know homeless people and to, to better understand the suffering and the, the unease in our midst. And, and also to see and to be incredibly surprised at the generosity uh, in, in, in this Jeremiah 29 picture of settling in and, and tying your life to the good of your neighbors, even when it feels like you don't have anything. If you want a picture of abundance, it's not a rich person giving, but it's someone that doesn't have a whole lot of anything. Jesus told that story too, right? Over this, the last couple years, I've, I've learned from the struggles of our friends, Eric and, and Sabrina, I've, I've learned about systems and powers and 
principalities locally that make it hard to, to be at home. I've learned about the amount of grit and determination and endurance it takes to live that sort of homeless life. And I've also, especially through Sabrina and Eric, I've learned about how God's presence is about the only thing that can, can help you sustain in that middle place, that place of being at home but not at home. The only thing that makes this sort of living possible. I, I hope you guys excuse all my circles, but this helps me see it. This helps me feel this, this calling. So I think this, this, this call, this image to be resident aliens, to be a refugee of sorts is, is this collision this intersection between what it means to, to be with God and God to be with us and to, to long for the citizenship that we have in heaven. And this is language from uh, Philippians 3. Um, our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to a Savior who comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3.20. Or First Peter, a letter written to the exiles of the dispersion, people who since their conversion no longer have a place or home to call their own. But you can live this citizenship in heaven in such a way that it makes you, I believe the phrase, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? But that's not the life of a refugee because the life of a re refugee takes very seriously their residence on earth. In some places, the place that they're cast towards. And so the place of a resident alien is this middle place, the, this, this place that we're called to that is often uncomfortable because it, we're at home, away from home. I've also in these last two years learned from our neighbors here in this very facility. Uh, some of you don't know or haven't gotten to meet Pastor Gideon and the people of Gospel Baptist Church. Many of, I, I think all of them are, are displaced from Burma Myanmar, we get to see in living color what it looks like to live in a place and make a home away from home. Again, these, these folks don't tend to have a whole lot to their name. They, they make a lot out of a little. I think the typical person I've met from that congregation has multiple jobs and in a, a really expansive household with, with parents and grandparents and, and many kids. One of my first exposures of the difference in, in how uh, a resident alien, how a, a refugee like that lives with Pastor Gideon's flock is how they tell time and how they worship together. See, one of the, one of the reasons you rarely see um, the folks of, of Gospel Baptist, sometimes you'll see the kids, and they're always really friendly, but one of the reasons you rarely see them like have a potluck meal together um, is, is because most, because they just kind of culturally do things a little different. They have to hold that culture. They have to hold that culture here in the middle. So when they have celebrations, when they have birthdays or potlucks or, or celebrations, they normally do it at someone's residence. And I could see the definite appeal for that because when, when you're home away from home, any bit of re residence, any bit of this middle slice, you, you really need to make home there. And so they'll pack ridiculous amounts of people into these homes, and then they'll worship, in, or they'll, they'll fellowship together until it's done. Like, and then they'll, they'll kind of all come to worship together. 
So it's, it's like you, you know, because that normally starts at five, but it's more of a Kairos moment. And I don't think it's like the Kairos moment uh, that we have where we just trickle in after 10. Um, but th this is because they're, they're flocking together. Um, they're able to keep an identity from their nearness to each other and their support of, e of one another. There's a, a quote um, from the title of their book uh, several years ago, it's Stanley Harawas and Will Willimon. They named a book called Resident Aliens about living as a Christian colony in a place that's not your own. And they said, to be a resident but an alien is a formula for loneliness that few of us can sustain. And maybe you feel this loneliness. Indeed, it's almost impossible to minister alone because our loneliness can too quickly turn either to self-righteousness or to self-hate. Christians can survive only by supporting one another through the countless small acts through which we tell one another that we are not alone, that God is with us, end quote. Gospel Baptist Church has shown me how much they need each other to sustain themselves in this place. And they need each other because with each other, they're experiencing Christ's presence in their midst. Where two or more are gathered, I will be in your midst. It's such a challenge to me who I sometimes think how comfortable we can feel in this place. How our privilege and how our resources make it all too easy to go it alone. It reminds me that our identity is in this middle place. That we're called to be a peculiar people. Uh, in that weird, peculiar middle place. That's both and, citizens of heaven and residents of earth. The final image I come up with, well, I didn't come up with it. Um, someone did. Um, it's an image of a creative minority. I think this is a really good image for us in this age that we find ourselves, um, this age that people are calling post-Christendom, uh, a, a place um, after faith as you read all these stories of the nuns are growing, those that don't believe in God or won't affiliate. People are leaving churches uh, all over. Buildings like this are opening up their availability, uh, let's say, um, because of this time we find ourselves in. So we find ourselves increasingly vulnerable. You, you can live that way with a chip on your shoulder. You can be depressed on that, or you can be a creative minority. This is the place where you hope to participate in renewal from a place of vulnerability. And oftentimes the place of vulnerability is a place that we can't help. <laughs> We're put into vulnerability. Whole classes and races of people are put in vulnerability. We're maybe culturally put in a place of vulnerability. This can go wrong two ways. And th these are like um, church planning 101, two common problems with church planning is all this excitement and all this steam that you have to be able to participate in God's renewal. So you can go in guns ablazing, right? You can go in excited, hoping to make big changes. Or you can kind of hole up <laughs> and try to try to keep 
the ship aright. But instead of either of these two poles, the place in the middle is that place of the creative minority. And this is a place that, that the Jews, that God's people Israel have, have long understood. This is, this is a place of, uh, if you look at it over a scale of long, long term, you see this kind of disproportionate cultural impact for a people that's relatively small. And it comes from, from the way they pursue their calling out of excellence um, and out of humility and, and that in some way their vulnerability um, leads to transformation rather than threatens their ability to transform culture. This is an identity that a, that a Jewish rabbi and scholar Jonathan Sachs talks about specifically in this Jeremiah passage. He says, what Jeremiah was saying is that it's possible to survive in exile with your identity intact. For your appetite for life to be undiminished while contributing to the wider society and praying to God on its behalf. This is Jeremiah's call from God for his people to settle down. Settle in for the long haul. These things that we're being asked to do are, are long-term things. They're generational things plant gardens and stick around long enough to eat the produce. Val was telling me this morning that she's, she's tending a, a grapevine. You're not going to eat grapes very soon, Val, so stick in there for the long haul. Uh, the other directives here are, are get married and have kids. This is fulfilling that creative cultural mandate from Genesis that be fruitful and multiply it, but this is doing it not in the Garden of Eden, but very east of Eden, in this place of exile, in this place of sin. This is, this is, a, this is a very crude analogy, but this is, this is like, um, like Las Vegas, right, in, in their cultural imaginations, or this is, this is the big city when you've been in the country being able to hold your own. But they're not only to get married and have kids, but they're going to find husbands and wives for their daughters and sons so that then they can have grandkids. This is an inconceivable transformation for the way that they're supposed to live in a place. And ultimately, they're, they're not supposed to do so in opposition to their neighbors. They're to pray for the good of the city because out of the good of their neighbor, out of their neighbors flourishing, they're going to find their own peace, their own flourishing, their own home. This is, this is a f definite different approach, and, th and this is one that, that I can only be reminded this sort of contribution, this sort of um, uh, planting, I can only be reminded of, of this story. And I, these stories, they may or may not be true, but I don't. I kind of don't think it matters. But when someone asked Martin Luther what he would do when Jesus, uh, if he knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, Martin Luther, in typical uh, like Martin Luther tweetable fashion, says, "If I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. It would look something like this." And with that is this trust that that even in God's um, advent, in God's coming again in Christ that we're to, we're to invest here. If you want a, a modern day version of this, just start reading Wendell Berry. Read about that investment in the soil through the, the life and death and resurrection of compost in the many, many years that create just an inch 
of fertility um, that's going to benefit our place. Plant a tree. Jeremiah challenges his hearers to tie themselves and their own flourishing to the flourishing of their neighbors. For them, this means even and especially their enemies and their oppressors, even idolaters, even unbelievers around them. Promote the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. This is a place of humbling, but it's also a place of action. It's a place of, of difference and discipline, but it's also a place of blessing because it realizes, and this is what Jonathan Sachs says, that every time you try to be like your neighbors, you will be defeated by your neighbors. Every time you worship power, you'll be defeated by power. Every time you seek to dominate, you'll be dominated. But if God is with you, he says, you can be my witnesses to the world, that there's nothing sacred about power and or wholly about empires or imperialism, but I will be with you and I will bring my kingdom. This means that we're being called to work towards peace. That we're being spurred creatively. This is called the creative minority because it, it seeks like Jesus to seek creative alternatives. Read the Sermon on the Mount and tell me those aren't creative alternatives to violence, to sin, to oppression, to fear. When the Lord speaks through Jeremiah, he says, I know the plans I have in mind for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for peace, not disaster, to give you a future filled with hope. And that peace and that hope begin to take shape in a place, not somewhere else. There is no there, there is no then, there's here and there's now that will be transfigured into a there and to a then. He will be with us and bring us out of exile. If peace and flourishing can happen in Babylon, it can literally happen anywhere. It can happen in Durham, it can happen in this little slice of Durham. So how does this all fit with our vocation? I think it fits in this place where, where we relish God's pledged us that he'll be with us, that he'll draw us out of exile, but also that he sent us into this place to live and to invest. And right in the middle is our calling. Coincidentally, this is, this is also the place where Jesus is, this, this place, this intersection, this overlap, this place of, uh, where heaven and earth collide and intersect. This is where that calling gets worked out that vocation in our studies, in our work, in our home lives, with our neighbors, in the use of our gifts, in our discernment of opportunities where God has put us, we begin to understand that witness and that sentness, that heaven and earth over, overlapping in, in how Jesus is, is bringing his kingdom, and, and, and I, I can't do animation, but I think Jesus is kingdom coming on on earth as it is in heaven means that those circles continue to collide and that green middle space starts to get bigger. Those places of intimacy and healing expand where we're truly known and loved and shown grace. 
This is God's promise through Jeremiah. God has a mission for his people, for his church, and I think for this church. That sending father who sent out his creative word and who sent his only begotten son because he loved the world. That son who sent and poured out his spirit on all flesh. That spirit who empowers sent ones, who makes apostles out of us that we find our calling in that witness and intimacy with God and that sentness. Our vocation, is, as Beekner put it, is that place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. There's a collision. There's an overlap. That witness and sentness of God. This is the place of Jesus. This is the good news. That, that middle slice right there is the good news. This is the gospel story of the God-man. God who's come to be with us, who's empowered us and equipped us and sent us. That Jesus would understand this earth by inhabiting it. He would understand each of us probably better than we understand ourselves because he made us, but he also took flesh. He understands sin. He understands death. He understands what it means to be sinned against and to be put upon. He understands how to sing the blues. Read the Gospel of John at Lazarus's graveside when Jesus simply weeps. This middle place is the Gospel because it's, it's that place that where the consummate re resident alien being sent by his father, not only with heavenly citizenship, but also authority, Lordship to establish a kingdom and create little kingdom colonies who live on earth as it is in heaven until heaven continues to expand. Maybe this is, is why Jesus was, was sent with a, as a newborn with his parents out of Egypt as a refugee to, to embody this, this experience as one at home without a home. We also see in this gospel in Jesus as rooted to one place. Have you ever thought of how wildly inefficient it was for God to become man in Galilee in a time that didn't even have the internet or ways to broadcast that everywhere? That in the, the entire life of Jesus, he probably traveled, I don't know, like a, a few miles, how many miles? Like, yeah, 200 miles, like Georgia, you know? Like, um, that's God embodying, being, and forming around Jesus a creative minority, limited to a place, but, but pouring into a place, creating life in a place, planting a tree for the new creation. When we live into our creative calling, we come to find that we not only receive a call from Christ, but that our call is Christ. <laughs> The vocation is to be like him, to be with him, him to be with us, to follow him, but also to be more and more like him as he transforms us by the renewing of our minds, not the patterns of this world, so that we can figure out what God's will is, his good and pleasing and mature will. So I, I pray for the coming seasons of Oak Church that we continue to grow in this 
calling that we, together <laughs> as a creative minority, as, as resident aliens, as, as blues singers that we continue to experience and embody and, and, and just continue to have it revealed to us what this looks and feels like here. Nowhere else, here. Together as we experience and embody hope and healing and, and hospitality only found in Jesus in this home away from home. You guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this calling that you have on our lives, and we thank you that that calling is wrapped up, swaddled in that manger where you sent your son. Father, we thank you for being with us in your son and spirit. And Lord, we thank you for sending us. Give us that intimacy and that urgency. Renew in us your life for the sake of this world. Continue to bless us, Lord, like you've always blessed the community of people formed in your name. You've blessed them and you've blessed us to be a blessing. Help that trickle down into every corner of our calling, every area, every, every actual crevice of this neighborhood, every alley, every crawl space, every every spot. Lord, in this calling, give us empathy and compassion for our neighbors who are without a home. Help them find a home here. Lord, give us empathy and compassion for our neighbors with great big homes who are just as homeless or perhaps more so than, the, than those other neighbors. Father, put your word on our tongues and help us embody that word as we go into the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.